0: Well, it's moments like these that make you ask, how can you not be horny about baseball?
1: Every take hot and hotter, entwining
0: and abutting. Watch him climb, mountain. Nothing's about nothing. Every stitch wet with sweat, breaking balls back, dormy, uneffectively.
2: Wow, can you not be horny? When
0: it comes to podcasts, how can you not be horny?
3: Hello and welcome to episode 2128 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you?
0: Well, you know I'm not a uniform guy. I respect people who are nerdy about uniforms. I'm certainly nerdy about enough things that I respect it in others, but I don't share that particular kind of nerdiness. Mm-hmm. And so you start talking about plackets and piping and perforated numbers and so on. I'm probably not going to pay particularly close attention. And so this spring's uniform mess started out. Being of only mild interest to me, like as long oh, as the players ben. are wearing something out there, I might are not they, notice though, the difference. Ben? I know. Are they? That's, that's the thing. We've reached the point where we can't be confident that they are or we can be extremely confident about what they're wearing underneath the outer mm. layer. I mean, if we're going to get to the point where they're giving Shohei Otani semi-transparent pants, then I have no choice but to pay attention to this story. And so I have. And as everyone is aware, we got to... Big ol' uniform mess going uh-uh. on this spring. It has become a big story and a confounding story. Yeah. And frankly, a funny story in some mostly respects. Mostly funny, but, but also mostly funny, but, but also face palm level funny kind of. How did this happen? What were they thinking? And by they we could insert any number of yeah. companies and corporations. So mm-hmm. man, I mean, the pants are One issue right as as tony clark of the players association said universal concern is the pant which is quite a quite a quote (laughs) by tony (laughs) (laughs) but it is not the sole concern it is maybe the most salient concern here because we got partly see-through pants going on here as everyone realized on photo day
3: it's like they're wearing a cheesecloth, you know? It is <laughs> yeah. like when you can make out clearly the logo on a mm-hmm. on a man's underwear, something has gone very wrong with his pants. And and yeah. look, like, you know, I, I don't know that anyone would describe me as like a fashionista, you know? Mm-hmm. No one would say that Meg. she's famous for her outfit. So like if <laughs> no you want to say wear, that about
0: me either, to be clear.
3: <laughs> yeah, like if if you if you want to wear uh, semi-translucent pants as long as all your bits are covered up in public like i think mm-hmm. that's between you and your gun but here's the thing about being a baseball player you don't get a say in what you wear at least mm-hmm. not very much a one and no. um
0: and less I, than ever now yeah i don't
3: I as much as we have fun, Ben, as much as you and I have a little bit of fun, you know, tiptoeing up to um, a, a vaguely horny line, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as much as we have spent time on this podcast saying, look, if they if they want to kiss each other a little bit, mm-hmm. if they want to,
0: they, only if they, they, should, they want
3: to, only if they want to, but if they do want to, they should be, you know, they should be allowed to kiss each other a little bit. You know, we mm-hmm. should they should feel comfortable doing this little tender kissing. I don't think that anyone in their place of work should be forced to be displaying their undies to people that feels like a, I mean, that feels like a legitimate, I don't want to like be, you know, like this person, but it does, it does feel like a legitimate labor question to me where it's like, (laughs) I would be happy to not know anything about the, the, the undies. That's, (laughs) that's none of my business. And to, Another thing, Ben, and again, I'm, I don't want to, I get why it's a funny, but like some of the pictures circulating, the buddies are not all that you are making out no,
0: of No, no.
3: That's not right. You shouldn't, you shouldn't make someone go to work and give them a uniform and say, hey, by the way... If anyone has pedantic questions about what "write down the dick" means, they might be able to, recall, you know, bring a specific one to mind. That, yes. that seems bad. That seems yes. like a not good situation. Like this seems like it requires intervention because, yes. like the the spacing of the letters on top and the insistence on moving the MLB logo down and all of that nonsense, the lettering being cheap and looking pressed on, like none of that was good and you know, there's like, there's the, the question as it concerns the players and their like literal workplace conditions and how it's going to look on TV as an entertainment product. And then there's like the separate, it's still important, but it, you know, Im, I think importantly, different question of like, how do fans who want to spend some of their hard earned money on a Jersey feel when this is what they're going to receive? That's all, you know, important stuff to a degree, but then there's the pants, and <laughs> I, I think that Tony Clark is right that the pa- the pants are maybe the the window, as it were, <laughs> into a solution to this problem, wherein some combination of Nike and Fanatics has to do something because they can't be they can't be wearing those pants. They can't. That, yeah. <laughs> they shouldn't wear. They shouldn't wear them tomorrow. They should. They should wear sweats instead. It would be better to wear sweats. Than those yeah. pants, because you can see right through those pants, Ben. They, yes. they are. The,
0: there is it's a, cheesecloth. A, a Casey Schmidt <laughs> photo circulating that. There's a two-ball count in this photo, and that is very apparent. And there was also Not an, right. an ESPN story here from Jesse Rogers. Each camp has seemingly a different issue, including some that are worried about supply chain problems, which led at least one player to tell Clark he might have to go to Dick's Sporting Goods for backup Oh pants.
3: no! Oh, no. Oh, no.
0: Dick Sporting Goods, that's where you need to go to correct this issue. So just to bring everyone up to speed here who has not followed this story, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about it. And I have been depending on the estimable Paul Lucas of UniWatch, who is all over this as usual. I'm out of my depth here. But basically what has happened? So Nike designs the uniforms, Fanatics manufactures the uniforms- And that is not new. Nike has been the official supplier designer for a few years now. Fanatics bought the place that manufactured. It used to be Majestic. Fanatics bought that several years ago. So those things are not new. What is new is the design. Of the uniforms and specifically the jerseys. And the design was tested in various places. A previous spring, the All-Star game, most notably, NCAA, etc., but clearly the testing was not sufficient, or perhaps something has changed since the testing. It seems like, based on the reporting from people who know that most of the blame lies here with Nike. I know everyone is understandably suspicious of Fanatics because of the well-documented issues with the consumer, the the retail Fanatics jerseys, right? I mean, this is sort of a, a monopolistic arrangement at yes. this point. Fanatics has been sued for that, in fact, right? And so – People are understandably, I think, jumping from, oh, we've seen the Twitter accounts, we've seen the the tiny, tiny microscopic names and the wrong names and the mismatched Mm -hmm. logos and everything, and thus everyone is blaming Fanatics. And I don't know that Fanatics bears no blame here, but it seems like Nike is responsible for the design changes. And those changes, some of them... Wouldn't bother me that much, or wouldn't even be all that noticeable to me, someone who doesn't particularly care about these things. I mean, there's a new fabric for the jerseys, right? And it's Mm kind of paper towel y, apparently. It just has that kind of cheap, thinner consistency. The whites are off white. The MLB logo, as you mentioned, has been lowered from the neckline to just above the name, and perhaps as a result, the names are smaller, significantly smaller than they used to be. The numbers are sort of perforated like a, a pinhole, at least some teams, and then the plackets, the the piping down the center, it's sort of narrower now, and so you also have some awkward lettering breaks where the, the break for that, where the buttons go and everything is kind of interrupting the... The team name, all these little things, right, that I think collectively make the jerseys and the uniforms seem cheaper. But Mm -hmm. again, I might be completely oblivious to that. And it's not totally apparent to me what the motivations for all of these changes are, like – Ostensibly, it's because they're lighter and they're more breathable and they're, you know, sweat-wicking and high-tech and everything, right? And it tends to be thinner and, and clingier. And maybe that's true. Maybe if they keep using these things, then when it gets hot out and people are worn down, maybe they'll like the feel in some respects. But also, the players seemingly almost unanimously do not care for the design and particularly the pants now the pant fabric as i understand it has not changed but there's more of a, an eggshell color now which is more <laughs> revealing it would seem and also not customizable anymore which right. the players are are not pleased about right. they used to be able to get like the personal tailored fit and now it's more of like a one size fits all situation which just seems strange. And and also, there seems to be a transparency issue going on here. Now, as Paul has written at UniWatch, this wasn't unheard of before. It was unheard of by me, but he shared some examples of last year's photo day, and there was some transparency going on then too. I was not aware of it because it didn't really go viral and Probably people weren't scrutinizing the (laughs) uniforms and the, the pants as much because there was not this notable change. But even like this year, there were some teams that were wearing the old pants. And even then, there's like some little bit of transparency going on. But it seems like not as acute. I'm just saying some of it might be because of the setting and the lighting of photo day. Right now, I'm I'm watching the first spring training game between the Dodgers and the Padres. And the Dodgers' greys look okay, at least. The Padres' whites, they do look a little more transparent. But I, I don't see London. I don't see France. Like, I can't... Well, he
3: plays <laughs> for the Mariners.
0: <laughs> Good point. Yes. <laughs> but i'm not seeing everything as i'm watching the game and i guess ultimately what matters the most is what you can see on tv and it looks I, like okay oh <laughs> no
3: i disagree i disagree because okay. here's the thing i mean i think that that is a that is absolutely an important piece of this mm-hmm. uh conundrum this problem but a thing to 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 realize is that these these guys got a they gotta walk to and fro here and there yeah you know where there are bright lights <laughs> ballparks ben mm. there are mm-hmm. b- bright lights in the ballpark and we have a lot of close-ups and you, i don't think you just don't want to risk it i guess is my my broader point you know mm-hmm. it's like <laughs> if if they are walking to, you know, past a, a, a ballpark employee, if they are, you know, at, at their locker post game talking to, to beat reporters, look, you, you don't want to. I just. You could see through their pants, Ben.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's not ideal.
3: If they bend. Over, if there, is, if there is tension in the fabric, mm-hmm. it seems like the possibility that we're going to be able to see right through that sucker is... It's, a, it's non-zero, you know, mm-hmm. and we've always been able to see like a um, some of it, to your point, like it's, it's not unprecedented and sometimes you can see like the, the outline of their um, jersey top in, mm-hmm. in right. their pant bottom and then it looks like they're wearing a little diaper and that's funny, but mm-hmm. this is different. This is their actual... Yeah. Undies and, yeah. and other things and the outline of them and that's none of my business and I don't think that they should have to wear that at work, you know?
0: Yeah, like, no, it, it doesn't seem. I mean, I it guess seems they're bad. some people might consider this a selling point. They might want to tune in, but I think most probably would respect the privacy of the players. Yeah. And I, I, I still have some questions about I have this. So now, many questions. Obviously, the the Players Association, Tony Clark, has been pretty vocal about this. That they're trying to find out what. What is happening here? What went wrong? What can we do to fix this? Right. Like right. Who knows how long the production pipeline is? Like, can right. they quickly fix this or are we stuck with these for the season? And the only positive quotes I've seen from players have been Nike sponsored players yeah. pretty much. Right. Yeah. I think. Paul Lucas, again, he, he looked for any positive quote that did not come from a Nike-sponsored player. And apparently, Marlins pitcher Brian Hoeing says that he mostly likes the new uniforms except for the smaller names on the back. And he is not a Nike sponsored athlete, but that's pretty much it.
3: (laughs) I don't want to impugn the integrity of Brian Hoeing, who Mm -hmm. as an aside, what a last name. Yes. Like a farmer. Don't make it dirty, Ben, like a Mm -hmm. farmer, you know, Mm -mm. but maybe he wants to be a Nike sponsored athlete. (laughs) Maybe 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 maybe. he sees, he sees an opening, right? There's a market inefficiency. Uh, No, I, I, I he he might just like how they feel, you know, who knows? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, there are all kinds of tastes. I like some truly ugly hats, you know, mm-hmm. um, quite famously. It's like, at this point, kind of an important part of my personality. So there's, uh, oh boy, you just could see so much. And again, yeah. like, if they want to kiss each other, I'm fine with that. If they mm-hmm. want to be tendy, that's, a, that's nice. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there is, I'm struggling to find it. But in one of the rule books, like if a player's pants rip on the field, mm-hmm. there is a rule in the rule book that they must replace their pants in a timely fashion. Mm-hmm. So that and the the implication of the rule is, hey. There are kids here. We don't need to see anybody's pork and beans out on the field, right? Like, that's the implication of it. And yet, we are seeing so much so clearly. Yeah. It, it really does look like cheesecloth, you know? Yeah. It's like you're trying to strain something for cooking.
0: <laughs> right. And some people, some players, it looks like, are, are basically playing under protest and using just the old pants in this game, at least, that you know I'm what? watching. Good for them. Yeah, you can tell from the, the belt. Buckles and and loops are different, but I wonder though, you know, I think everyone has not unreasonably assumed, oh, they're just cutting costs. It's just about being cheap. And maybe that's it. I would love to know what the rationale for some of these design changes are because, as Paul Lucas is saying. Maybe the cheapest thing would have just been to keep doing the same thing instead of doing this redesign that they've been working on for years like that cost money. They could have just kept using the old template. So how much of this was just about cutting costs? How much of it was just not realizing what the backlash would be? And if it's the latter – How did they not know? Was the testing insufficient? What responsibility does MLB bear here for quality control and oversight? Obviously, they're outsourcing these things, but at what point in the process did they have a say and get to rubber stamp this? And did they just not realize that players were not going to approve? Like, it doesn't reflect well on MLB and the product in general, so... I still have a lot of questions about yeah. how this happened. Like, is there some sort of performance improvement that will actually be tangible, that will be the, the plus to the minus of the fact that we can see through the pants? I mean, is there like another side to the story here? Nike at this point has basically said nothing. The pants are pretty transparent. Nike is not. I don't know if that's because they kind of like the fact that everyone is just defaulting to blaming Fanatics. And if Nike were to speak up, then people might realize, oh, Fanatics, not the only company that bears responsibility here. I don't know. But I would love to hear what went wrong here. I feel like we're still waiting for the definitive explanation or story.
3: It seems like it's it's probably a mix of things. Amanda Mull wrote a good piece about this for The Atlantic about like sort of, mm-hmm. you know, there's this trend in, in sports toward performance fabrics. I don't know yeah. if that accounts for everything here, but some of it too is that, yeah, you can, the removal of things like, you know, a, a hand-stitched nameplate, you know, if it's printed onto the jersey as like a screen print, sure, it's lighter. It is also cheaper. And so Mm -hmm. it's sort of like that meme. It's like, why not both, you know?
0: Right. But as she pointed out, sometimes thinner is not cheaper. Right. Because if it's thinner, you still have to ensure that it performs, that it doesn't tear. And that means you have to do research and you have to have some sort of special fabric that lets you do both of those things. So it might not automatically be... correct. Thinner equals steeper, although it yep. could be. We just don't really know.
3: It's wild. And like if I – I know that there are practical considerations here. And I'm sure that there is – you know, like I don't know what the – um Uniform retention policies of the various clubs are like, I don't know if right now a team has all of their like still usable uniforms from last year, like in a storage bin somewhere. Like, I don't know if there's a ready supply to your point of like alternatives that could be put in here. And then, you know, you're like, well, what do you do with guys who like weren't on that team last year, etc.? But if I worked for the league, I would be like, you know, what would make us look really good mm-hmm. is if we were like, You're right. These are bad. We're going to fix it. And then they did. I Mm -hmm. I think people would be like, cool, thank you, because, and this is part of the the thing, you know, I think Amanda put it well, and she's talking about the fan market for jerseys here, not the leagues, Mm -hmm. but... She said, they have you over a barrel and they know it because you Mm -hmm. have nowhere else to turn if your son wants a jersey for his birthday or your team wins a championship and you want an object to remember it by. No one has to do a very good job and they'll still get to charge you $400. Mm -hmm. So it's like, this feels funny because... It's so comically bad, but it also is wildly depressing because it is yet another example of like us being in this stage of capitalism, which isn't always the best. So it's got layers, this story, unlike the pants, which seems to be
0: (laughs) single ply, (laughs) single ply. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I I know that, I mean, there's all kinds of problems with fast fashion and just like the industry in general and the workplace conditions that produce those things and the quality and the shitification, as people say. Right. And. Yeah, I just, I can't figure out how much of this is intentionally cutting corners. I know that there was a situation with Nike and the NBA when they took over the NBA uniforms in 2017. There were issues, but that was taking it over and going from Adidas one season to Nike right. the next. Like they didn't have time to figure it in. in this case, they had like four years to use the majestic template as the placeholder and then figure out what they wanted their new design to be. And for this to become really sort of a national story. Now, maybe it's a product of the fact that February is a slow sports month and, you know, all the writers descend on spring training and then realize that nothing much is happening in spring training. And so maybe it's a perfect storm of like, there's a ton of people itching to write stories about something and nothing else is actually going on. But But, but it is newsworthy. Like, it is, it's a story. And
3: Ben, like, I think that sometimes, and you know, not to wax philosophical but it's like i think one of the most disorienting things of our modern moment is that we can all witness the same thing and end up with wildly different interpretations of a seemingly obvious event right and it can feel like profoundly destabilizing to you as a human being and you know a person who lives in a democracy but like sometimes we all sit down and we see the thing and we go what the What is happening here? Mm -hmm. And so I think you're right that, like, the sheer volume of photos that we're getting out of spring and the fact that now, you know, spring training games have started and so we're going to get to watch all of these guys. But, like, also, all you have to do is look at it and be like, Mm -hmm. but I can see his (laughs) clear as day, you know, Mm -hmm. like, his doctor doesn't have a better view. (laughs) It's not right. You know, yeah. and I'm, I'm doing a funny voice, but like it's not right.
0: And I wonder what happens. I mean, what impact does this have on the retail market? Not that it's a, a secret that there's a, a low quality to some of the jerseys that are out oh there, but God, when you have yeah. the most visible spokespeople essentially for the jerseys the ones who are wearing it on tv and are denigrating the product and her point because half the reason people buy jerseys and again like i don't and so i haven't really experienced the degradation in quality firsthand though i've certainly seen all of the testimonials but when you have a jersey, you want to be like the pros, right? right. Like you, you want to wear that so that you can look authentic. And so when you have the, the most authentic, the people who are wearing it on the field and they don't want to be wearing it, right? then do you want to then buy that uniform? Do you want to wear it? Do you want to get that jersey if the player you're trying to emulate by wearing it is kind of crapping on it fairly? So you would think that it would be a situation that everyone involved would want to rectify as quickly as possible. Like it's not a great situation for the players and their privacy and just looking snazzy. And it's also not a great situation for MLB and it's not a great situation for Nike or Fanatics for that matter. So I am very eager to see how this is resolved and how quickly it is resolved.
3: I'm telling you, like, I don't want to make too much of it, but... I feel like if I were running for public office right now at the federal <laughs> level, I would make this a campaign issue. Yeah,
1: and like, be like
0: not, the, the Ralph Nader of the baseball pants.
3: Yes. <laughs> I mean, not the pants and the transparency of the pants so much. Although, again, they are just – it's like looking through a window. It's like mm-hmm. looking through an undies window. Like, what are we doing here? But, you know, it's like – and I know that to your point, it's not – There are multiple parties that can be held responsible here, one of which is likely fanatics because they do make the damn things. But also, you know, Nike's involved and whatnot. But here's the thing, though, like it's like you should say this is why we got to bust up monopolies, because Mm -hmm. you, a suburban dad, have a dumb looking jersey. You look like you (laughs) bought it off a shady third party site. And instead it came from mlbshop.com. That's mm-hmm. not that's not good for anyone. That's bad mm-hmm. for everybody, you know. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Let the jerseys radicalize you. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I don't know if we need to disclose this because I think it's clear from the content of our conversation here that this is not influencing anything we're thinking or saying. But uh, indirectly, we have oh, been yeah. sponsored by yeah Yeah, I, I guess so.
3: Yeah, because they own tops. We've yep. been
0: sponsored by tops in the past and perhaps we will be in the future. Who knows? Who and- could say? They are, know. they are owned by Fanatics. Though, as far as I know, the the cards are okay. Yeah, <laughs> so I was like, they can't
3: make those see through. That kind of defeats w- the whole purpose.
0: We're not hawking the jerseys here, but no. uh, just just mentioning that, just in case. Though, I don't think uh, anyone would have thought that we're like the Nike sponsored athletes who are talking about how great the jerseys are, because that's clearly not what we're saying here.
3: Yeah, I think our opinion on this is fairly clear, but mm-hmm. it is a good it is good in the interest of full disclosure.
0: Yes. Well, in the meantime, players just make sure you're not going commando out there. I guess just have something on under there. Have your jock and perhaps some layer on top of the jock until uh, they figure the situation out.
3: Oh my god, I just looked at I just looked at Twitter and there's and there it is again. There's a picture again. Like there's another one.
0: What a story. So, we have two team previews to get to today. I guess this has been a preview of sorts or perhaps not. We'll see if this turns out to be a preview of the season or just oh, of the boy. spring fiasco. But we're going to be talking about the Milwaukee Brewers with Kurt Hoag of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and the Diamondbacks with Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic and AZ Central Sports. I do have one brief down the dick follow up. This uh, was not it, actually. <laughs> but, I was
3: going to say, isn't this the second follow-up of that nature?
0: Yeah, would have been appropriate <clears throat> if we could have bantered about this last time. But uh, the photo days photos started surfacing after we had oh, talked about boy. down the dick. But what a mess. we talked on our last email show about the definition of down the dick. Whose dick is it? And we... Kind of came down on the side of, well, I I think it's the batter's dick. It's the vertical level, even though it's a middle-middle pitch. And therefore, Mm -hmm. you could say maybe it should be the umpires or even the catcher's dick, right? But I got an email from... Ben Zimmer, who is the foremost word nerd in the world, or one of them, he writes the language column for Wall Street Journal and has uh, weighed in on effectively wild subjects before. He's a listener. And he wrote in to say, just caught the write down the cock slash dick discussion. (laughs) See, write down the cock is just so much more graphic. Yeah, it is.
3: It's like a, anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Somehow we
0: didn't even talk about Johnny Dickshot at any point during that segment, which was really- Admirable of us. But Ben continues, since Paul Dixon doesn't have much to say on this, author of the Dixon Baseball Dictionary, I can fill in some historical gaps. As far as I know, down the cock for a pitch right down the middle of the plate first appeared in print in an unsurprising place, Jim Boughton's 1970 tell-all ball four. Which uh-huh. revealed to the public the true foul-mouthed nature of baseball players and pitchers in particular. In a glossary of the game, Boughton defined down the cock as the quintessence of the hitting zone. Quintessence. <laughs> Once Boughton opened the door, down the cock began appearing in other unvarnished memoirs by MLB pitchers, including Tug McGraw's Screwball in 1974, Denny McLean's Nobody's Perfect in 1975, and Sparky Lyle's The Bronx Zoo in 1980. As for down the dick, the earliest I'm seeing it in print is from 2011. None of these sources illuminate how the phrase came to be used in the first place. He pointed to Evan Singer listeners suggested in the Facebook group that metaphorically speaking, it's the dick or cock of the plate that they're talking about as dead center. Others have suggested maybe it's like the strike zone or again, the umpire, the catcher. I could see some influence from right down the pipe with pipe replaced (laughs) with a suitably phallic expression. (laughs) Or as Meg put it, it is indeed a poetic dick. I can't confirm whether Ted Williams talked about pitches at cock level as Wikipedia has it, but there's a similar anecdote in Ben Bradley Jr.'s The Kid, The Immortal Life of Ted Williams. Boston sportscaster Bud Collins has a post-game ritual with Williams where Collins would ask him what kind of pitch he'd hit for a home run. Fastball, cock high, Ted would usually respond. And according to Bob Sheeger's Voices of Baseball, Steve Carlton used the same expression. Supposedly after one game in 1968, Carlton was asked live on the air about a home run pitch, and he said it was fastball about cock high so now we can determine i guess with greater accuracy than ever whether a pitch was actually dick high because we might just be able to see (sighs) how high that is but hopefully not for long
3: oh boy i just i can't even i can't i don't even know what to say you know i just don't even know what to say
0: me neither so, any quick reactions to baseball notable news? Namely, Kodai Senga is hurt. He's got a shoulder issue. Yeah. Doesn't sound great. He is no. uh, ruled out for opening day and thus far. Not any time after that, but you got to worry. It's a posterior capsule strain Mm. in his right shoulder. I guess that's different from the anterior shoulder capsule strain that Brandon Woodruff had to have surgery for, which we will talk about later on this episode. But not great because he was sort of the sole bright spot in that Mets uh-huh. rotation. We've already done the Mets preview and we talked about could Senga be even better? And he would have a hard time being better if his shoulders hurt. So that rotation's just, that's a mess without Senga.
3: Yeah, I think that that's my take. If he is not able to come back in relatively short order, it could get kind of dicey pretty quick. And, you know, they have some prospects, but it's a shaky mm-hmm. group now. And it that's kind of concerning. Although, like, I don't know if it changes my my view of their prospects, not the players, but like their prospects as a team for this season. Just because I think my expectations of the Mets are fairly low this year, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's not good news. You know, even if it ends up being as minor as they're hoping, it's not good news. So
0: no, I like watching Senka. I like yeah. that Ghost Fork. So I would miss him if I can't watch him. Also, yeah. and and yeah, I wonder if it pushes the Mets into seller territory as opposed to just right. kind of, let's see how it goes. You yeah. know, if, if they're aiming for a wild card, at least in theory now, if Senga's seriously injured, then Joshian just wrote about whether they consider trading Alonzo if they could find right. a taker for him. So, yeah, that's, that's not great news. Never like the the serious injury to an entertaining player early in spring. Not and good. then, I guess in better news, perhaps the Pirates have extended Mitch Keller, yes. hot on the heels of an athletic exposé about Bob Nutting and his uh, comfort with mediocrity, which is probably a charitable way to put it. We'll get to that so in many, our Pirates So many potential preview.
3: jokes in this. Uh... <laughs> I
0: know. <laughs> but... Man. N- Netting, nutting is still nutting. We haven't used that term in that way mm, for a while. No. Maybe now it would just be overkill given everything else we've talked about on this oh, yeah. episode. But Pirates have extended Mitch Keller five years, 77 million. So, you know, they still don't sign free agents to big deals. They have at least signed some of their own players to extensions now. So this will run through 2028. He is coming off a good year. I don't know if we could call it a breakout year people have been waiting for him to put it all together and he put at least some of it together he was he was good if not great and certainly yeah. was a, a stalwart of that rotation career high in innings solid performance right so yeah. Better it's in the first
3: a, half than the second, if I recall. But yeah. yeah,
0: so good that they could pencil him in for a while. He's only 27, turning 28 in April. Yeah. So it's a good sign. It's uh, sure. not sufficient. It's uh, not enough to move them from the are they nutting category to are they not, which was our term, at least for a while, for just uh, oh, yeah. not investing your funds in the team, but just kind of pocketing that money. And that is still pretty much the Pirates way.
3: Yeah, but, you know, now their fans get to see this guy stick around for a while and be mm-hmm. good. Although, you know, it's interesting. It doesn't have a no trade, does it, the extension? I don't, I don't know if we know so. one way or the other. You know, it's always so interesting when we get these deals because on the one hand, they signify a commitment on the part of the organization to the player, a, a sort of a sign that they want that guy to stick around for a while they also are an indication of cost certainty right and so on the one hand you don't sign mitch killer to an extension if you plan to trade him like at the deadline but mm-hmm. also this deal is pretty light and so now they know exactly how much he's going to cost and so does every other executive in baseball
0: yep Well, more on that in a forthcoming Pirates preview. And I guess since we've already done the Marlins preview, we could note that the Marlins have signed Tim Anderson. Yes. Banking on a bounce back here. It's just a one-year, $5 million. Yeah, but a
3: a major league deal. It is.
0: Yeah. 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 And not a, a pittance here. But obviously coming off an extremely... Challenging season, certainly on the field, maybe off the field as well. Maybe those things are related. Who knows? But right. he's been an entertaining player, a player who's been fun to watch, fun to root for. I'm hoping he can be that again. And yeah. so are the Marlins, clearly.
3: Yeah. And also, you have to note the other important signing that is relevant to the over-under draft.
0: Ah, yes. We absolutely must mention that. Gio Urschella. Going yep. to the Tigers yep. for a a mere what was it 1.5 mm-hmm. million on a one year deal and that's another win for you for uh-huh. your draft and yep. you have taken the lead again. I
3: don't understand how this is I, possible. I know,
0: I know. He got only 1.5, and MLB trade rumors predicted 20. Right, and yeah. you took the under. I did right by a yes. lot there. And so now... I don't
3: understand.
0: You're at 81.5 How? million in the How? right direction, despite the negative 172 for Otani.
3: 172, Ben. That's <laughs> and I'm,
0: wild times. I'm at 63 million in the right direction. So I'm now almost 20 million behind you. But of course, now, the fate yeah. of the draft is yes. hanging in the balance because... The Boris four, yes, <laughs> are still out there, and, and we you have three collectively, them. yeah, and mm-hmm. you have the other one. So yeah. you have you have Snell. I have the other three. So yes. this could go either way. Yes, and uh, we'll never know because none of them will ever sign. So this draft <laughs> will remain unresolved forever.
3: I have a feeling that you, because it is February 22nd when we are recording this, look, we could be wrong, but the fact that they are unsigned as of this date makes me think that you are going to hit on at least a couple of these guys and potentially by a significant margin.
0: Yeah. Because we've got under on all of them, <laughs> so
3: yes, we have under on all of them, and you have Bellinger, Montgomery, and Chapman. Although mm-hmm. I think that the most likely under is Snell, like that one. I don't know. I have a feeling it's going to be like the biggest under, but you have three, so I think I think you're going to do yeah. fine. But the fact that I have rallied to this point is it's wild. You know, it is. it's a yeah. it's a wild turn of events. I cannot believe that it is
0: true. Regardless of who wins, uh, you have already won in a way just by making it this yeah. close and competitive at this point. Yeah, pretty impressive.
3: I, I thought I was wiped out, Ben. I thought I was. I thought I was done. You know, hunted, too. despised. But here mm-hmm. I am. You know. Yep. Thriving.
0: All right. Well. Let us take a quick break. Do your cup checks, everyone, just in case oh, anyone is taking a photo of you and your pants are transparent. And oh. we will be right back with Nick Picoro to preview the Diamondbacks, followed by Kurt Hogue to preview the Brewers. I want
3: to banter with From two hosts who are the guys. Just
1: a fan who wants Nothing less than effectively wild
0: All right. Well, we are back and we are joined by many time preview guest Nick Picoro of the Arizona Republic and AZ Central Sports. In fact, we were just reminiscing about his previous appearance on the podcast when he was outside and there were birds chirping. Now he's indoors, which I guess is probably better for podcast purposes, but we kind of miss the wildlife. However, we're happy to have you back to talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks, Nick Picoro. Hello, Nick. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's a lot of times now I've been on, huh? I'm
2: nowhere I'm yeah. near no Eric, but um, <laughs> but it's it's been many, many years.
0: Yeah. And this is the first year that you were talking about a reigning pennant winner. So that is different and new. And I guess that's a good place to start. So Diamondbacks, famously quite a successful 2023 season, but also famously or infamously an 84-win team that was outscored during the regular season. So, how did they balance those things as they approached this winter, coming off of that success, but also seemingly needing to make some improvements based on the full season results?
2: I mean, they they definitely made improvements, I would say. It was sort of funny listening to them on the first day of camp try to kind of balance this, like, what what we did last year doesn't mean anything right now versus, like, yes, we've gained so much confidence after what happened last year. You know, like, <laughs> it's it's... It's always fun to, to hear them try to, try to make heads and tails of, of those sorts of things. Mike Hazen talked a lot about how we only won 84 games and how we still have a long way to go and how we're not going to be the best team on paper. And, you know, I liked his offseason. I don't know how you couldn't have, right? I mean, he added a, a guy in the rotation in Eduardo Rodriguez that, that kind of fills that, that hole that was pretty evident for all of October. You know, he upgraded at third base. With Suarez, he you know added a couple of different outfield slash DH options in Peterson and Grichik, brought back Guriel. I mean, it was it was it was a good offseason. I, I don't I don't feel like you can really look at this team and say it's not in a better spot certainly than they were you know at the start of last year and probably a, a better spot than even at the end of last year.
3: Yeah, I feel I feel for the Diamondbacks because I I think that they had a productive offseason season. They you know, spent money where they needed to to upgrade. And I think the only reason that we're not collectively talking about it more is because they happen to exist in the same division as the Dodgers um, and obviously didn't bring in Otani and Yamamoto. Where do they see themselves sitting sort of in the competitive landscape of the NL West?
2: Well, I mean, I, I think everybody acknowledges that the Dodgers are awesome and everybody would be shocked if they didn't win 100 games. And You know, understand what they're up against. I I don't think it's as hard for them anymore to to just sort of look at it like, hey, all we got to do is get in. Anything can happen when you get in, right? I mean, they they were they are living proof of that. I was talking to Corbin Carroll about it before spring training, and he mentioned something like, well, you know, I just see it as they're just increasing their chances, right? I mean, I I I get it. Like, I'm just trying. You know, they're just trying to get in there. They they have a better chance than they did before of of getting in. But that's all we got to do too. We just got to get there and. You know, we feel like we can we can do some damage if we're if we're there and and playing our game and doing our thing.
3: Well, let's let's break down some of those additions. Um, you know, you talked about them signing Eduardo Rodriguez, who has had sort of an odd couple of years very productive when he's been on the field, has had stretches where he hasn't been for a variety of reasons. What about him sort of spoke to them as a guy who could come in and help sort of stabilize that rotation and, like you said, give them a viable starting option where they were kind of lacking one in October last year? I guess
2: the first thing that probably drew them to him was their history with him. Mike Hazen, Tori Lavello, Amiel Sade all came from Boston and and you know, cross paths with him there. So I I, you know, it had been a long time, certainly, but I, I feel like they had a pretty good understanding of of who he was. And then, you know, the track record is is pretty good. And I think kind of a a little bit of a bonus is the fact that like, you know, they got him for for four years at a time when, you know, two the two most important guys in their rotation, uh, Zach Gallon and Merrill Kelly, have two years to go before they hit free agency. So they kind of added to their rotation now. They, they maybe bought themselves a little bit of rotation stability or so they hope down the road. Obviously, the last time that they went out and spent big on a left-handed starting pitcher, it, it didn't go great. But look, I mean, a thing I've been struck by this spring is just like the way guys kind of light up when they're asked about him. And, you know, just getting a, a feel for what he's like as a person, how eager he is to kind of help out the younger guys – I, we didn't—and I mean, this isn't necessarily a critique of, of Madison Bumgarner because, like, not everybody is that person, right? Everybody is different. But I do think that that Rodriguez is maybe wired a little bit closer to what they expected than, than Bumgarner. I think they were hoping Bumgarner could fill that kind of role. It didn't really work out that way. But Rodriguez, you know, so far, so good.
3: Maybe we can turn next to another guy in that rotation who really— Changed and blossomed seemingly, especially over the the month of October, and that's Brandon fought. He struggled mightily in his initial call-up to the big leagues, went down. Moved where he was pitching on the rubber, came back up, had a rocky start against the Brewers, and then really was a lifeline for that Diamondbacks team through the rest of the postseason. So, what have you seen from him in terms of his progression as a pitcher, and what are your expectations for him this season?
2: Yeah, he really he really saved their bacon last yeah. October, right? I mean, coming back and and pitching in in that game three against the Phillies and. He was terrific time and time again and probably could have pitched deeper into some of those games. Not that <laughs> Tori did much wrong in October, and I'm not trying to say anything wrong in Thought Starts either. I guess the thing that kind of stood out was just that it kind of felt like he was getting back to the pitcher that I had heard a lot about in that he's a guy that has a fastball that can play. You know, yeah. It felt like when he first came up, it just wasn't the case. It, he he couldn't beat guys with that pitch, and and he was giving up a lot of hard contact. Talking to him in October, he said it was the first time in his life he'd had to like work on his fastball. It had always just kind of come naturally, but he got that you know ride back to it. It wasn't necessarily a velocity thing, but it just seemed to start playing a lot better. I feel like we saw that in October, and it's you know it's enough to have them pretty optimistic about, about their chances of what he can give them. And, you know, he wasn't his October self for the last couple months of the season. I think it was around a four ERA after his final send down. But if, if that's what they got from their, their number four starter this year over, you know, hundred and something innings, they'll be more than happy with that.
0: There's a bit of a battle going on for the fifth starter spot there between Tommy Henry, Ryan Nelson. So can you break that down for us? And then what's the depth like beyond the top five or six?
2: I think probably it's Tommy Henry has the leg up. Just, you know, Hazen likes to talk about incumbency matters, he likes to say. and <laughs>
0: Does that apply to presidential elections <laughs> still or just the Dungvac's fifth starter spot? I guess we'll see. Uh,
2: <laughs> you know, he was pretty good. Tommy Henry was before. he got hurt and has been a pretty reliable like just to you know keep you in the game type of starting pitcher not that they don't think there's a little bit more upside in there but he's he's pitched pretty competitively and given them chances to win most every time he's taken the ball nelson has probably more explosive certainly more explosive fastball probably better pure stuff he was a a bit of an enigma last year in terms of I know a lot of the the data liked him better. I, I think his stuff plus numbers were pretty good in a lot of ways, but it didn't play very well. So I think, you know, figuring out how to be a little bit more consistent with his secondary pitches is gonna be key. You know, not that he doesn't have a chance, but I I do think Tommy Henry is probably gonna have to pitch his way out of the spot more than Nelson winning it. But
0: You know, I I don't I don't know that that's
2: necessarily decided. That's that's just kind of my feel for it.
0: And what about the bullpen, which was a bit of an adventure last year that was kind of rebuilt down the stretch? And we all became very familiar with Kevin Ginkle. And there were other adventurous uh, bullpens out there that the Diamondbacks were going against. But now you've got a full season of Seawald. How does that group stack up behind him?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's looking like for the first time in a long time, certainly of Hazen's tenure, first time I can remember in a long time, that they haven't really addressed the area um, all winter. And they're going in with possibly, you know, the same group that they had in October. And, you know, there's some questions as to whether they could have added more to it and, you know, just how trustworthy some of those guys really ought to be viewed as. It makes sense to me, though. It just, it, Feels like when you're when you're spending that money on free agent relievers, you really don't know what version of a guy is going to show up. Bullpens are obviously so hard to build, and relievers are so fickle and all that. But I think I feel like if you have a a what looks like a relatively reliable group, and you have some other guys underneath that maybe could pop up and and piece it together if guys falter. You know, like Miguel Castro and. Scott McGuff had stretches last year where they were their, the Dimebacks' best reliever for, you know, weeks or months at a time. You know, it's not crazy to think Justin Martinez could start throwing more strikes or Luis Frias took a step forward. You know, so if if some of the more, you know, uh, higher leverage guys, whether it's Seawald, Ginkle, Ryan Thompson, et cetera, were to stumble, you know, you kind of like, oh, and Corbin Barton is another interesting guy that's in that bullpen mix. You like your chances of maybe being able to, to backfill and then if you need to go out and get help, you know, there's always plenty of that available and at the trade deadline and you always feel better about the guys you're going to be acquiring then than, than, you know, kind of the unknown of, of bringing someone in over the winter. So it's definitely new territory to kind of come into the year with like a kind of decent feeling about their, their chances of running out an okay bullpen this year.
3: I want to shift attention to the guy who will be catching all of those pitchers and Gabrielle Moreno. And I don't want to knock Dalton Varshow and you never want to call a trade lopsided um, too early, but it really does feel like the Diamondbacks kind of got away with one here. And I say that, you know, with Moreno having a season where he dealt with injury, he wasn't always super productive at the plate, but it seemed like as the season wore on and he got further removed from the the shoulder issue that he really kind of came into his own as a primary catcher. So what did you see in him in terms of his development over the course of the season and sort of where do things stand with him as he, you know, gets ready for his second year in Arizona?
2: Yeah. When you talk about that trade, it, it kind of got me thinking about how these guys have never been afraid of making those kinds of deals, you know, whether it's like Jazz Chisholm for Zach Gallen, or yeah. even going back to their very first trade, Hazen's very first trade of of Taiwan and Cattell for Haniger and Segura. I wouldn't be surprised either if if this deal ends up playing out the way those did, where you look up every few months and you kind of feel a little bit differently about who won it. Obviously, Varsho didn't have a great year, and it, it yeah. you know it's pretty clear now the way you would look at it. But like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if if Varsho puts together a really good year, and, sure. and we're feeling a lot differently about it. Like you said. Moreno's terrific. He really was a a dominant force behind the plate. Threw incredibly well. uh, Shut down the other team's running game at a time when, you know, other teams were running more aggressively than ever. Called pretty good games. Received real well. And then offensively, like, you know, he kind of went from being this guy that it felt like for a lot of the season was content with, like, shooting a ball through the right side for a single to suddenly a guy who was coming to the plate like intent on doing damage. And that really seems to manifest itself most in October. So, you know, he showed up in spring looking really good. He he put on a little bit of weight and strength in, in his upper half. I'm curious to see how this all plays out. Is is he closer to the guy he was in October? Is is this a you know a 20-25 home run? Catcher, who's you know, is this like is this like Will Smith out here? You know, like I, right. I don't know. And I guess another thing is, he he did get banged up a little bit last year and and got banged up a little bit in October. I think staying healthy is going to be a, a real key. He's had a history. It, it seems like you know, back from his days in Toronto of, of having some trouble staying on the field. So you know, I think if he can stay healthy,
0: he's going to have a huge year. Break down the outfield situation for us. Of course, you've got Corbin Carroll and Griel back in the corners. Then you have. Alec Thomas, who has something of a rebuilt swing. And then you have Grichik, as you mentioned. You've got Peterson, although maybe he won't be playing a whole lot of outfield. How does the playing time and the platooning shake out there?
2: I'm not entirely sure how that's going to play out. Gritchick is dealing with some kind of an ankle issue. He He had, I think he said bone spurs removed from his ankle about a month or so ago. So his availability for opening day is a little TBD. And then, you know, whether he's going to be an option like in center field early on is also TBD. But I, I do feel like if he if he is, it and I guess even if he isn't, they could always slide Corbin Carroll to center, although they've they've said they'd prefer to leave him in right field, let him kind of get comfortable out there. It does kind of buy them a little bit of insurance in case Thomas continues to struggle against lefties the way that he has throughout his career so far. I think Gurriel is probably going to get most of the at-bats in left field. And then, you know, Jock Peterson and, and Gritchick are going to kind of get sprinkled in there, assuming Gritchick's healthy from time to time. And maybe guys will get a, you know, quote-unquote day off or half day sort of thing out of the DH spot. Yeah, Thomas, you mentioned the the swing changes. I'm curious to see how that plays out. Corbin Carroll, like you don't really have any questions about him, as uh, except for, you know, you look at the way his year played out. The only times that he kind of wasn't a, a dominant force offensively, it was either like he just banged his knee into the wall in Colorado or he, you know, had those those couple times where he grabbed at his shoulder after a swing and, you know, the weeks after that. So I kind of feel like, as crazy as it sounds for a guy with twenty-five homers and fifty steals last year, that maybe there is an, another level there we'll We'll see if he can stay healthy and and reach it, but you know there's really no reason to to doubt him, I feel like at this point
3: mentioned the steals with Carroll, and, you know, this has been sort of become part of the identity of this team, that they are a a fast team, they're a good base running team. Even guys like Christian Walker, who doesn't steal a lot of bases, is still a good base runner and grades out as such. Do you see that continuing to be a a core part of their offensive identity, or have they brought in enough thump with guys like Peterson and Suarez that we might have a little more balance between, you know, speed and, and power?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I guess some of it could depend on on how much Jake McCarthy ends up making his way into the lineup um, if he even makes this roster, which is a little TBD. Because the makeup of of the team from a year ago, when we were expecting McCarthy to to play significantly, uh, Josh Rojas to play a lot, um, it's it has changed a little bit. I do think that they are hoping to to be a little bit more balanced from a, a thump perspective. You know, like like you mentioned with Suarez. Uh, I, I feel like maybe there was a little bit of a, a give and take there, but, you know, with Dave McKay as the first base coach, he's always encouraging these guys to take advantage of situations. And if those situations present themselves, I'm, I'm sure the Diamondbacks are going to be aggressive again, but uh, I guess some of it could just
0: depend on the personnel. Tell us about Geraldo Perdomo at shortstop. I guess he's pretty entrenched and solidified there. Perhaps not as great a glove guy as his predecessor at the position, but a bigger bat. But who's his backup, if anyone? Yeah, I don't know. That is a thing they're trying to figure out
2: here in spring training. Kevin Newman was signed to a minor league deal. He could be the backup. They've talked about giving uh, Emmanuel Rivera some chances to show that he could maybe be the backup shortstop. It seems pretty clear they're not going to put Jordan Lawler on this roster to, to be the backup. Jace Peterson could get some opportunities to to show that he could do it. Obviously, Quintel has history playing shortstop, but you know if you try to give Perdomo a day off, you're going to have to have somebody else play second base. And just the way the roster shakes out after signing Gritchick, it, it just gets a little bit tight. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to play out. Back to Perdomo, though, I mean, he had a really good year last year. Certainly, the first half was better than the second half, but then he came back in October and and was a really reliable member of that offense and a guy who started a lot of rallies. just has an innate ability to recognize pitches and, and lay off pitches that are out of the zone and, and seems to be getting a little bit stronger and a little bit more capable of, of driving the ball, though I, I'm— Hesitant to to go too far on that. I think he's always probably going to be a a bottom of the order, you know, high on base guy at his core. Um, they are going to probably trust him to play a little bit more because last year when he was paired with Nick Ahmed, Ahmed was starting against lefties and Perdomo was playing against righties. And you know, Perdomo splits are such that that makes sense. But they're going to give him a chance to show that he can he can hit lefties a little bit better. He's he's a switch hitter, and we'll we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, they they don't really have that natural, I guess, platoon partner on that on the roster yet. Um, and maybe it ends up being Lawler at some point, but we'll see. Yeah,
3: I wanted to ask about Lawler and just how you. What are the circumstances under which we start to see him? playing more in the bigs cuz you know he got that that late season run although often used as a pinch runner and a defensive replacement more than a hitter so what do you see his trajectory being over the course of the 2024 season
2: Yeah I think he's going to have to go down and and mash and you know kind of earn his way back here you know there's just no natural path for him to to play right after after they added Suarez and I don't know, I, I'm not sure that I can really see them bringing him up and starting the clock to, to play once a week against lefties, even if he's, he's killing it, but we'll we'll see. I mean, certainly if, if Perdomo struggles, that changes the equation. And, sure. you know, Perdomo's not a, a sure thing to hit. And, you know, Perdomo's also got, a, shown that he has a decent amount of versatility. He's slid over to third base and played that position really well. Can play second and obviously is a is a really dependable guy at shortstop. We'll we'll have to see how that how that goes. I just I just don't think that barring injury, we're going to see Lawler up in the big leagues right
0: away this year. Is there anyone else who could come up and make an impact at some point?
2: You know, Blaze Alexander's on the forty. He's kind of an interesting bat, but he's had trouble staying healthy. You asked about starting pitching depth at the end of that that one question about the rotation. I never really answered it, but. Slade Shacone, Bryce Jarvis, uh, Blake Walson got added to the to the 40-man roster. Probably whoever isn't the fifth starter in Nelson or or Henry are are gonna all serve as as rotation depth. And those guys are all, you know, young starters that you know could end up figuring into this rotation, you know, long term down the line. So it'll be something to watch for sure. And you know, they've they've got a lot of like a lot of organizations, a lot of hard throwing that could come in and, and pitch out of out of the bullpen at some point this year, probably too many of them for me to start rattling off names aside from Justin Martinez, who's, who's uh, already on the 40 and has already come up and done it.
3: I want to ask about Cattell because a lot of this might just be that he was healthy and he was at a position that makes sense. No more outfield time for Cattell, but his 2023 was certainly uh, an improvement on his 2022. What do you attribute that to, other than the things that I just listed?
2: I don't know. He, uh, you're right. He it, last year was, or sorry, 2022 was one of the the few years where he was mostly healthy and and just didn't really put together the kind of year we're used to seeing. He showed up last year and was moving significantly better. I yeah. mean, it, it was looking like prior to last spring, you just didn't know how much longer Cattell was going to be able to play on the infield or, you know, play up the middle at least. Um, It just felt like he was, he was backing up like quickly. He was moving a lot better and you can, you can tell with him, like, like in October, like when he's, when he's like locked in and engaged and feeling good, like he, he plays the heck out of that position. It's it's just it's just so funny. I don't know. It's like he's a guy that you almost like take for granted. I feel like like people don't people don't talk about how good he has been, um, how important he has been to this to this lineup. He's terrific, and uh, and I, I feel like he's you know he's he's not Corbin Carroll, but he's he's not far off. You know these guys would would miss him if they didn't have him. They'd miss him bad.
0: Zach Buchanan wrote about this a bit in his BP annual essay, but Phoenix, of course, is a town of a lot of transplants, including Meg Rally, for instance. Oh, no. So how did the town rally around the Diamondbacks? Is this really Diamondbacks country? Can Phoenix be a Diamondbacks city? Now you have maybe multiple generations of, of some locals who grew up with this team there. And now that it's having success and seems to be per- perhaps set up for sustained success. I wonder whether you've seen any increase in enthusiasm, whether that's manifested in season ticket sales or any other way we could judge that.
2: Yeah. Well, how much would I be jumping the line on questions if I were to kind of address the, uh, what would constitute a successful season? (laughs) (laughs) Because I I just, I feel like, I feel like that's like such a big part of how, how I'm kind of framing this year. Last year, it was crazy seeing the way the valley rallied around this team and got caught up with this with this team and their run. A buddy of mine said he was he and his his kids were out at the they do this light parade down central in in december, and his he said like his kid and and his friends found out that Corbin Carroll and Alec Thomas and some of the other guys were on one of the in one of the cars on the parade and they were just going crazy and it was like he's like it would it was like michael jordan was there you know and we just haven't had anything like that here i feel like it's such an opportunity for for these guys to kind of finally take this franchise and like make it i don't know just like cement it into the the consciousness of of people out here it's Obviously, they they took advantage of that at the very beginning of the franchise, but it just kind of seemed like they fell off. Um, all those playoff runs that were just one-offs, you know, they make it in 07. They don't make it again until 11. They don't make the playoffs again until 2017. And then, again, they didn't make it until last year from then. They just really need to be a competitive team year in and year out for, you know, four or five years. And it it sure seems like, they're just kind of poised to take off and poised to, to kind of I don't know. The the sons have have always kind of occupied that place out here, and I I, I have no idea how you know I, I, it's hard to compare one October run, but it it sure felt different than anything I can recall, and and maybe if they can do that sort of thing you know this year and next year or the year after I don't even know if it's making the playoffs but just you know being a good team deep into the year you know, maybe they're able to make that jump.
0: Well, speaking of being poised to take off, what would not be so helpful for engendering long-term support in the region would be leaving the region (laughs) or threatening to leave the region, and that's what we heard this week from Ken Kendrick, Derek Hall, owner and CEO, respectively, who said they were not making veiled threats, but pretty clearly were making veiled threats about, (laughs) hey, you know, there are some other nice cities out there in the country who sure would love a baseball team, and this is, of course, to try to extract public funding for renovations of Chase Field, which has not been forthcoming thus far. So can you sum up that situation for us? What renovations are needed? How acutely are they needed? What hurdles remain here in order to get that funding? <laughs> Assuming the Diamondbacks won't just pay for it themselves, because that's typically not how these things work.
2: Yeah, they've said that they're willing to pay for you know more than half of it, and they've put the price around Four hundred and fifty million or so. So, they are willing to put some money out there. I I don't I don't know what was going on. I I think Kendrick just chose his words very poorly the other day. I he has a he has a habit of just like over explaining or just talking, like just letting whatever you know even stating the obvious when it shouldn't be stated. Like years ago, he he famously infamously mentioned how a lot of people connect Luis Gonzalez to PEDs, and it's like what are you, why would you, (laughs) why would you need to say that about your, you know, he just, he does that stuff sometimes. And I don't think he means to like, to, to dredge this stuff up, but he does it. And I I think he just did it again the other day where he was just like, well, you know, this is how it could play out, you know? uh, So I, I don't know. They, you know, they, they do think that there's a lot of like kind of infrastructure stuff that needs to happen, plumbing, electrical, that kind of thing. The um, roof, the roof. Yes, I mean, gosh, they still haven't <laughs> fixed that thing. I mean, it can open and close, just only when you know.
3: People aren't people in the
2: aren't, <laughs> Well, yeah, well, when I'm there, they don't. Fans. They're not afraid yeah. to open it. Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they also want to do the revamp the the club level stuff. Like you know, they have they have this. Tiny little I don't know if, if either of you have ever ever been down there, but they have this tiny yeah. little like underground thing behind home it's plate. It's weird, weird. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's and I think that they envision maybe having it look a little more like Atlanta or Dodger Stadium or something like that down the road. They want to redo the clubhouses and all that stuff too. So I mean, oh, and they wanna do everything around the ballpark or other things around the ballpark if they can. I, I don't know the specifics on what they have in mind there, but there's little patches of land here and there that you know maybe they go up right or they do something that's i don't know like like the battery in atlanta where it's multi-use and year round and and all that so i i don't really have a feel for for why they can't get it done why they're having so much trouble you know getting any traction from the city or or the state. It sounds like they would even be open to the idea of of putting something on the ballot and letting letting the you know voters decide on whether to you know kick in a little tax or something to to pay for it. Um, but they can't seem to get a whole lot of traction on on anything at a time when you know that they're right. You look around. I'm not. I don't want to take a side here. Like I understand the controversial nature of, of public funding these things. But, you know, a lot of these other cities in the majors have been getting help from the, you know, government to, to renovate their facilities. I, you know, they have this thing that their, their lawyers drafted this bill and got it through and they can, they can, they can activate this like tax district, I think it's called, where basically you would just put a charge on everything that happens at Chase Field to raise the money. The optics on that, I don't think that is something that they're eager to go down that road, but it also sort of feels like if people are going to be paying for the stadium, it should probably be the people who are going to it and using it, right? So (laughs) it kind of makes the most sense to me, but understandably, they don't want to have to charge their best fans more money
0: if they don't have to. Well, we will return to that topic in the Brewers segment coming up soon. (laughs) So, you anticipated our final question here, but I guess we could keep it to more of the on-field arena. So, what would be a successful season for the Diamondbacks? On the one hand, I guess the only way to be more successful is to actually win the World Series this time, which is a tall order, or I guess you could say win the division, but that is also a pretty tall order in the NL West, as we already said. So, what would be... A success realistically than if we don't hold them to the standard of beating the Dodgers or beating everyone in the end.
2: Yeah, just, I mean, getting back to October would be a success, kind of on, like, a developmental standpoint. Like, I think, like, I think getting growth from Alec Thomas and Moreno, getting a, a full season of, of Brandon Fott where he's a, a reliable starting pitcher... um we didn't even mention Drew Jones getting Drew Jones, you know, mm. back and on the prospect map and looking like a, a part of their future again. Um, you know, those those are probably the things that stand out the most to me. But like, really, it's 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 you know, be a competitive team deep into the year, get to October, and and give this franchise its first back-to-back playoff teams since the very early days of the of the organization.
0: All right. Well, stay tuned to see if that happens. And if it does, you will know about it. Thanks to Nick Bacoro, who covers the Diamondbacks for AZ Central Sports in the Arizona Republic. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Nick. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll take one more quick break and we'll be right back with Kurt Hogue, who covers the Brewers for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. If baseball were different, how different would it be? And if this thought haunts your dreams, well, stick around and see what Ben and Meg have to say philosophically and pedantically. It's
1: effectively wild. Effectively wild! All
0: right, we're back, and we're joined by Kurt Hogue, who covers the Brewers for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Welcome,
1: Kurt. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a good good time to be up. Good to have you.
0: And first things first, the most important question that's on Brewers fans' minds. Nick Picoro was our guest for the Diamondbacks preview earlier on this episode. And when I told him that you would also be on this episode, he said that he has a special place for you in his heart for handing out candy in the Milwaukee press box last season. And when I said, what kind of candy? He said, I can't remember. So I said, I would ask you. And so I need to know what kind of candy do you hand out in the Milwaukee press box?
1: The thing to know about the Brewer's Beat is there's a lot of sweet aficionados. Adam McKelvey, who's currently recovering from eye surgery right now, so shout out to, uh, to Adam, is the candy aficionado probably like in the entire BBWAA. And so when I interned for him uh, at MLB.com like, seven, eight years ago, uh, they had me bring in like the bullpen candy bag or at least the bullpen, like, kitty backpack, and we filled it with candy. So when the Diamondbacks came for an albeit short stint, an abbreviated time in Milwaukee for the playoffs, uh, I trotted that bag back out. I think it's a Finding Dory bag? Uh, whatever whatever iteration of that movie was coming out in 2016. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the bag I brought, and I brought some some delicious uh, local sweets. And mm. so it was a good time, albeit, again, short time.
0: Okay. Okay. You're the candy man. That's good to know. I would not consider myself a candy aficionado, but I would still be pleased if someone was distributing candy in my vicinity. I don't know if I have a a segue between that and actual brewers-related questions that people might want to know. Have the brewers been handing out candy to free agents this offseason? Maybe not so much. We'll get there. Maybe we can start with the beginning of this offseason, Did it take the Brewers by surprise that Craig Council departed for a division rival? What was their reaction
1: to that? Yeah, the division rival part for sure took the Brewers by surprise. It took everyone by surprise. I think the comment of the offseason in Brewer circles was owner Mark Atanasio immediately on his, his press conference after Council left saying that he has lost the community by going to the Cubs. And so we've, we've set the bar there for quotes for the entire offseason, and no one has come close to to reaching it. So people were surprised. People were blindsided. I thought, honestly, you know, like the, the, the fan sentiment might, might soften a bit. That has not happened. It's, it's, there's remained a lot of contention about the move, going to a division rival, a team that you're competing with every year, a team that you have competed with at the top of the division many, many years. For a guy who's from Milwaukee, and a lot of fans, I think, saw as a representative of themselves of of, of Milwaukee baseball. So it's yeah, surprising. Um, I think a lot of people were getting coming to grips with the idea that council would not be here next year, but for it to be Chicago was was a total shock.
3: I think that even beyond council, the the Brewers' offseason has been a little bit a tale of two cities for me, almost it's the best of times and the worst of times you're, you know, extending um, before he's even debuted Jackson Churio, but you're also trading Corbin Burns. Um, you're signing Reese Hoskins, which is super exciting. You have a depleted rotation relative to what the team has had in years past. So maybe we can start with some of the the good news. What did Milwaukee see in Jackson Churio that made them confident that he was the, he was the guy for them um, at such a young age.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting because if you look at these deals historically of guys that have not played in the big leagues and get extensions, they have not worked out. There's some names there that uh, you, Brewers fans probably don't want to hear in the same sentence as Jackson Churio. Hello, Scott Kingery. Um, it didn't quite go as the Phillies hoped there, among others. But the, the belief of the Brewers is that Churio is just so well-rounded And his skill set, like, the bat speed is just incredible. He's, you know, he's been playing center field for a year and a half and already is a good defender out there, and he's fast. And, like, the whole package comes together. And that this can be the guy who is not only critical to this team this year, but is going to be at the center of the team for a while. And, you know, they're not going to be paying him all that much until the Christian Yelich contract is, is done. So... I think there's a large a large part of this for the Brewers, you know, a cost-conscious, value-conscious team. Like, it's at the center of almost everything they do, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of those moves later. It does help them out to, you know, get this guy. If you believe he's going to be a star, which he might be, it sure helps them out to get him under contract. He secures his financial future, but in five, six years, they believe this is going to be like a really under-market rate and, you know, we can talk all we want about uh, whether that's good or bad for the game. And there's a lot of stars that have taken early contracts. And it's like, sure, feels kind of strange, especially like some of the Braves guys. But at the end of the day, you know, they got, <laughs> a kid took $80 million guaranteed to secure his future. And he's a p- pretty electric player. Like that's the word that comes out of everyone's mouth. And if the Brewers are going to do anything this year, he's got to be. He's got to produce right away.
3: Well, and that yes. makes me uh, wonder, you know, this is a question I I thought of asking later, but maybe we'll just do it now. You know, how how do the brewers understand themselves from a competitive perspective? Like, what do they view their chances of, uh, you know, being in the division this year? Because, you know, if Churio comes up and produces... Right away, he'll be one of a number of young guys they have who are pretty exciting, but they also traded away Corbin Burns. So where where do they see themselves sort of relative to the rest of the division?
1: Yeah, this is kind of what makes the Brewers a very fascinating team. I think maybe like a little underrated in their quirkiness coming into this year, like on a national scale. It's because this offseason has been a tale of two offseasons in a way. I mean, you lost your manager who they preached was critical to all their success. Um, They lost the best homegrown pitcher in franchise history, probably. Teddy Higueroa might want to say something about that. But digressing from that, then they have made some good moves. Like Reese Hoskins was a good signing. They went out and signed Gary Sanchez. So I would not have very much optimism about this team winning a division if it was not one of the central divisions, probably specifically the NL central division. I think you've got four teams there that are solid, like have a decent chance of winning winning it from everyone, but the pirates you'd think, but there's just, you know, like the, the the pitching is so much different than we've seen in past years. And the good news for the Brewers, I guess, is that you can actually win by scoring runs, something that has not happened much in Milwaukee in recent years. Uh, And so that's kind of the goal this year is to win a different way, but it just looks so different on the pitching and the run prevention side than it has in years past. And, that's going to raise significant questions, and the thing that the Brewers are going to need, like they are a very high variance team. The way I see them this year, you know, you got all these young guys—you got Garrett Mitchell, Sal Freelick, Jackson Churio, Tyler Black, Bryce Tarang, Robert Gasser, DL Hall. Joe, like just a litany of like twenty-four-year-old guys that are talented. Uh, but with yeah. that, it could it could go great, you know, and I could see them winning eighty-eight games and taking the division with that. But you could also see them, you know, like there's a reason I think their win total is like 76 and a half over under. And then like Picota is not very high on them either. So you can totally see both sides of the coin and it could go great or it could just flop.
0: And I guess you've got an older manager now with that younger team. Pat Murphy, of course, has been Craig Council's bench coach, right-hand man, has filled in for him at least on one occasion. So was it an easy decision to go from Council to Murphy? And how might this team be different with Murphy?
1: I think at the end of the day, it was a relatively easy decision given the path the Brewers were wanting to take. I think they were interested in some other like younger names like a Joe Espada was one name that came up but the theme for much of the offseason until they traded corbin burns was continuity like they were running so much of this thing back they brought back the entire coaching staff um and they had that all sorted out before council even left so the idea was to continue this thing that's been good that has won you you know between 85 and 90 something games every year for the last what five six years and while pat murphy has not been a manager at the big league level aside from a, a couple months as an interim uh with the padres he's got a lot of experience in that seat he's he's different than council i I think maybe council got was known for you know being really analytical and also when the cameras would pan to him in the dugout he's always looking stressed or uh <laughs> <laughs> like blowing raspberries or something like he he, he he did not always pr- project the most confident demeanor outwardly, and I think Pat Murphy's a different guy. He's fiery. He's equally, if not more, competitive. He's been known as like the the jokester, the guy that's always got the wisecracks in the clubhouse. Um, I wonder if his you know how his relationship changes this year because almost all these guys knew him. They had a relationship with him, but it's different when you. When you do take a different seat, I, I'm interested to see how the dynamic with him and new uh, bench. Co- oh, no, sorry. Not called bench coach this year. The Brewers are uh, naming their <laughs> titling their bench coach associate manager. It's Ricky Weeks, mm-hmm. uh, which will make <laughs> oh, Ricky Weeks. baseball fans from what a decade ago feel really, really good or old or nostalgic or maybe a combination of the three. So I'm curious to see how that dynamic goes like two hard nose, intense, fiery competitors that do not have a ton of experience in their current positions. So it will be a, a a big change, but the Brewers are betting on this whole continuity thing, at least in the front office and the coaching staff.
3: So let's talk about the, the Corbin Burns deal and particularly the guys who they got back. And I want to start with D.L. Hall because D.L. Hall was a Big prospect, you know, certainly someone we were high on to a degree at Fangraphs, but also couldn't crack a Baltimore rotation that really needed starting pitching last year. So how do you see Milwaukee deploying him? Is he going to have an opportunity to sort of earn a rotation spot? And do you have a sense of what adjustments they might be trying to help him make to secure um, a starter position?
1: Yeah, I don't think... You trade for a guy like the the guy that you get back from Corbin Burns, although you know Joey Ortiz is a very good ball player in his own right. But like the pitcher that you get back for Corbin Burns, um, I don't think you immediately just lock him into a bullpen role, they're going to try it as a starter, and I think that makes a a lot of sense because if it fails, you know what, he's still got probably a future closer and the back end of the bullpen, but yeah. Everyone who you know has followed prospects kind of knows the story with DL Hall for a while. This stuff is incredible. The command is not, so it's it'll be interesting to see what the Brewers, who are a, a pitching development deep team like this, is kind of their mo. It's it's kind of uh, it's like a, a really good and really interesting fit to see what this team that has some you know very progressive views on pitching does with this guy. Do they shorten the arm path? Um, I'm not sure they really need to change up, like the arsenal itself. The stuff is so good. Maybe a little bit of how he uses it here or there. But yeah, you're not going to be able to walk what five, six guys per nine innings like he has done. Yeah, and remain a starter and, and the Brewers' rotation like it looks way different this year. But they have four or five or six guys, you know, vying for those last two s- spots or so in the rotation, and DL Hall there's a lot of reason to believe that he could and should and will get one of them. But yeah, there's there's so many guys at the back end of the rotation that kinda leads to the high variance thing on this team as well. Like how healthy is Aaron Ashby? How, is Joe Ross a good big league pitcher still? How is Jacob Junis? Is Colin Ray gonna give you 150 innings? Like it's uh it's it's a lot of pitching depth, but also even more pitching questions.
0: So you mentioned Ortiz What's the plan for him? And I guess, how long should people expect Willie Adonis to be a brewer? Is Ortiz just going to play third base? Could he take over as soon as this season if Adonis is traded? Or is he just sort of the shortstop of the future?
1: I think Joey Ortiz is going to play a lot. My opinion on him has changed a little bit. Actually, probably a lot of it since talking to a friend of Fangraph's, Eric Longenhagen, after the trade. He is, <laughs> he is one of the Joey Ortiz guys, at least in like how... Yeah how high his floor is, um, and that sort of opened my eyes a little bit to like, okay, this guy could probably be a three- to four-win shortstop um, with if he hits just a little bit because of his defense. So I think for a long time, the Brewers sort of saw Bryce Terang as the heir apparent at shortstop. I mean, this is Willie Domus' last year of his contract. He is going to hit the free agent market and probably make a lot of money and almost certainly not in Milwaukee. So they need someone to replace that but the results in Terang's rookie year just were not what the Brewers hoped at the plate. Uh, and now this whole offseason, you know, between getting Joy Ortiz and they've got Tyler Black coming up and and uh, moving Sal Freelich to the infield question mark uh, has raised a whole lot of questions about how they see Terrain. And so as it pertains to Joy Ortiz, yeah, I think you'll see a lot of time at third. I think you'll see a lot of time at second this year. And then if it works out, you know, to a modest level, that's probably the shortstop in 2025.
0: And do you think Adamas finishes the season as, as a brewer or starts the season as a brewer for that matter? I
1: think that's a question <laughs> of, yeah, are the brewers sellers or buyers at the deadline? And I don't think they'll be far enough out at worst to be sellers. So I think he finishes as a brewer, yes.
3: I don't know quite how the brewers managed to do it. But they might have gotten the best or at least the second best uh, player in the Sean Murphy trade, even though they didn't actually transact uh, quite as directly with Oakland. I think William Contreras's emergence as not only a, a viable starter, but a really good defensive catcher for Milwaukee last year um, took, took a number of people by surprise. What do you expect from him in his sophomore season with the Brewers? And what sort of framing prowess can the Brewers bring to another catcher on their roster now, Gary Sanchez, whose defense has been, you know, at times middling in the past?
1: Yes, the the vaunted Brewers catching lab is theoretically (laughs) going to be at it again. Yeah, I mean, we start with Contreras. Like, this is a guy who came over and had, you know, he had success with Atlanta. And it was viewed as sort of a, I think even the Braves maybe a little to a degree with it. Um, obviously, they chose Sean Murphy over him was, I don't know how sustainable this is. Like, he doesn't come with the best prospect pedigree. He hits the ball on the ground a little too much. He can't play defense. The Brewers totally, and contrast, totally transformed that reputation. I, I think you talk to people around the organization. I think you get the vibe of like, there's still room for this guy to grow. When you think of Brewers and good hitters and guys who hit the ball hard but hit it on the ground a lot, it's Christian Yelich that comes to mind. But Contreras's number of hard-hit grounders, like the percentage of his hard-hit balls on the ground, was just about the exact same as Yelich. So they think there's a lot more room for this guy to grow, and he's got so many of the pieces of a really, really good player for a really long time present already – and if he hits it, like he starts lofting the ball to left field, or he doesn't even need to go to left field, he's got all field power um, to match with his pretty good plate discipline and his elite defense. That's a guy who is in the MVP conversation. And you know, if he if he puts it all together in certain years, and I think he f- you know finished around top ten last year too. So that's the most critical piece to this Brewers team, in my opinion, is how William Contreras fares. They need him to be very good. And then Gary Sanchez is, I thought that was a really good. Fit by the Brewers, you know they kind of saved some money uh, in the Corbin Burns trade. Although the downside of that is, well, uh, you lose Corbin Burns. <laughs> but at least they did invest some of it back in the team uh, with Sanchez. Honestly, feels like Gary Sanchez is the kind of guy that they've needed to add in the last two or three off when they had Corbin Burns and they had Prime Woodruff and they had Prime Peralta and they had Prime Hater and they had Prime Williams and you get the point. And they didn't add to the offense, and then. In stunning fashion, they, you know, didn't score and didn't score in the playoffs. So it is that and Hoskins are the kind of moves that this team needs. You just need guys that hit homers. Homers are good. Homers are cool. Uh, And you have right-handed guys that bop the ball out of the lineup. It should be a good fit, assuming the wrist, uh, the wrist health holds up.
0: How do you think that Freelick experiment is going to go? Is that going to stick, Freelick in the infield? And do you think that the way he started with the Brewers is a better recommendation of the way he finished last season? Would you expect him to make some strides in his second season at the major league level?
1: Well, <laughs> who who knows? Uh, is, I guess the question about how he's going to fare. But he, I mean, he hasn't played infield since high school. But there's always been kind of these whispers of, he's athletic he has you know he's like he's got a good glove he's he's able to learn on the fly and those sort of things kind of conducive for him moving to second base especially with the the logjam of outfielders they have i guess their second and third base for free so they are going to need some offense from those positions and they have a lot a lot of guys vying for time at second and third i don't get the sense that they want it to be their top option necessarily, just considering the amount of players that they do have that can play at second and third between Tyler Black and Andrew Monasterio and Owen Miller and Joey Ortiz and Bryce Tr- all these guys. But it is a, it is kind of eye-opening that they have all those guys still and they are moving a very good defensive outfielder and trying him on the infield. I don't know if it exactly screams of confidence uh in in some of those guys, frankly. So yeah, we'll we'll see how it ends up transpiring through spring training. Um, you know, you don't know how good or bad a guy is on defense till he gets in games and he will be in lots of games at second base. But if it works out, it gives them a lot of different flexibility with certain things that they can do because they have a log they have a log jam in the outfield and it's hard to see you know, how does Yelich and Mitchell and Churio and Freelich and Joy Weimer, how do they, you know, get all these guys playing time and also figure out which ones, you know, what they have in each one of them?
3: So you mentioned Christian Yelich, and I'm curious what you attribute his little bounce back to last season, because it wasn't the kind of production we saw from him in 2018 or 19, but it was a, an improvement from what we had seen the year prior. So what do you attribute that to? And do you think he'll be able to sustain those gains again?
1: maybe a little bit of health or maybe a a lot of bit of health. I think he was able to manage the back problems that had flared up quite a bit through the last couple of years. There's a little bit of a mechanical change too. He went to a toe tap um, and almost immediately found some success with that. There was also some defensive improvement. Like he went from the guy with the worst arm in baseball, who also couldn't track down a fly ball over his head to it you know, depending on what metric you want to look at, like slightly above average to a passable left fielder and also some minor adjustments in terms of like the approach at the plate too. He was swinging more and it turns out uh, sometimes that even though you have elite plate discipline and you can draw walks, when you hit the ball really uh, dang hard, being aggressive lets you take advantage of that. So there's still like some of the you know all the ground ball things and the power's not fully there but i mean you you were looking at one of the best left fielders in baseball last year and kind of a return to the Marlins version of Yelich which um is not the MVP Yelich and i don't know if the MVP Yelich is ever going to come back I feel like they'll be asking for a lot out of a guy who's uh, who's now 32 and has battled some of the health problems that he has but you know, if you can get three wins out of a guy, um, 800 or so OPS, hit 15 to 20 homers. That's, I mean, just like I said with Contreras, the Brewers absolutely need that from Jelic. And I don't see a reason to think that he can't do it again. He seems rejuvenated. He seems fresh. He seems to be having fun playing the game instead of, you know, maybe shouldering the, the weight of expectations when, when things are, are not going well. You could kind of see it, see it a bit on him. After games over, you know, previous years, uh, just you know, just kind of sitting after a game, trying to figure it out, Um, and there was a lot less of that and a lot more happiness and joy and um, enjoying his job. I would say last year, which uh, you know, what when when you're performing better, that that does make sense.
0: So we've talked about how the Brewers are kind of coming and going at the same time and adding and subtracting and Mark Canna out and Reese Hoskins in. And one player who has both come and gone, I guess, or left and returned without ever actually going anywhere else is Brandon Woodruff, who was maybe the most notable of the non-tenders and then ended up signing with the Brewers. So what's the state of his shoulder and his outlook for returning? And what led to both the non tender and then also the resigning
1: shoulder injuries are tricky and it creates a, a large unknown in how a guy's going to respond I don't expect him to pitch in 2024 the the possibility that door is still being left slightly cracked it's barely open but it is technically open which is I guess the best kind of open and so we'll we'll see how he progresses on the shoulder but he gets to rehab with a group and a team that, you know, and a staff that he's familiar with. And I think that was important to him as well as some of the sentimentality of staying with the Brewers and, you know, not having his career end shedding tears in a press conference before the uh, NL wildcard series about how he had hurt his shoulder. I think that matters to him as well. Brewers fans were over the last couple years kind of wondering, okay, are they going to be able to extend Burns or Woodruff? And Woodruff was always sort of the guy that you figured was more likely to, you know, tack on some years as a brewer. Part of it is he was not represented by Scott Boris, but part of it is, you know, he like the sentimentality and that part of it seemed to matter a a bit more to him than Burns. And it kind of ended up working out that way. So, you know, Woodruff's not going to pitch this year, probably. But you get him in 2025 20, at a highly discounted rate. He's a grade A human being, a grade A teammate. Like you can't. Not only can you not find a person to to say like a single bad thing about him, you can't find someone who doesn't just like fully say glowing things about him um, as a teammate, as a person, as a competitor. So it ultimately made some sense for the two to come back together. Although I did wonder if there was going to be a team, you know. That was willing to throw more money, and I'm sure there was teams that were willing to throw more money at him. Um, it was just a matter of does Brandon Woodruff want to take a little less to come back and rehab and you know keep this thing going with the Brewers? And it turns out uh, apparently that he did.
3: In some ways, I feel like Reese Hoskins has always been a Brewer because I feel like the Brewers have been trying to have a Reese Hoskins at first base for the last couple of years, and they've tried to. A- a number of different iterations and none of them have quite produced the way that you would expect, you know, a a really standout big league first baseman to do so. Hoskins is obviously coming off a a year where he basically didn't play because of uh, the knee injury. So I'm curious sort of what they saw in him that made them feel like he was sort of the Reese Hoskins who was promised and uh, what your expectations are for him this year.
1: Yeah, the Brewers have been a turnstile at first base. They had 10 players, there last year and if you ask me to name them right now i could not do all 10 although one was abraham toro i know that (laughs) so that's that's the situation the brewers were at last year and this has honestly been like it wasn't just last year it's been an ongoing thing of they cannot find a first baseman to actually hit the ball so reese hoskins is a guy that honestly they would never generally get but uh the circumstances worked out in their favor with the acl and he was looking to go to a winning team, and you know they're willing to take on a little bit of payroll for a couple of years um, and a little bit of risk coming off the ACL. So it did work out between the two sides. And I mean, with what they're paying him, and the fact that he has that player option uh, for for the second year, and could exercise it if he's not good. The, the, the it's I feel like I said this already with Yelich and Contreras, but. They they need the Philly version of Reese Hoskins or something close to it. You know, a guy who's going to walk a lot, but a guy who's also going to hit the ball really hard and do a lot of damage and drive in runs because, you know, this, this lineup has been littered with some decent hitters in the last couple of seasons. But when push came to shove, you know, you're kind of looking at the middle of the order and you're going, this lineup is supposed to compete with, you know, the Dodgers or the Braves and, uh, you know, how how far can the pitching carry them? So I I do think, you know, you've got Yellich, Contreras, Adamus, Hoskins, maybe Churio at the top of that lineup. That's solid. That's, you know, you'd expect that to be a solid group. Um, but there's not a lot of wiggle room after that if, you know, one or multiple of those guys don't, uh, they don't produce.
0: We covered some of the weakness in the rotation, which is unfamiliar for the Brewers. They project to be 17th in starting pitcher war. However, for what it's worth, they project to be fourth in bullpen war. So tell us about this group behind Devin Williams.
1: (laughs) The strength of the team is the bullpen. Now, the scary part of that is we all know, know, from watching baseball, how predictable and reliable bullpens are year in and year out. Now, Devin Williams, I feel pretty good about saying he's going to be a very, very, very good closer this year for the Milwaukee Brewers. And they do certainly have a, a litany of guys behind him who are coming off good years, and you have reason to believe they'd be good again this year. And, you know, depth again. You have so many options that a couple of them really only need to work out as late-inning late, late inning arms. Well, um, But, again, this is a team that has... A chance for some volatility. Will Bryce Wilson be as good as last year? Will Elvis Piguero be as good as last year? Will Yoel Payams, the throw-in in the William Contreras trade, be as good as last year? I think Abner Uribe is, is primed for a step forward as you know, maybe the 7th or 8th inning guy in front of Williams, the fireballing right-hander who uh, has has some very fun antics on the mound, at least throughout his minor league career, before I think maybe some of the big leaguers uh, knocked, <laughs> knocked that part out of him as soon as he came up, but that's, that's the name I would follow most closely outside of Devin Williams. Um, and then we'll see, you know, does Aaron Ashby go to the bullpen if he's not in the rotation? Is Joe Ross a starter? Is he in the bullpen? Um, does DL Hall end up in the bullpen? So yeah, it's theoretically the strength. It should be the strength, but (laughs) there's the concern that, uh, relievers at any time can turn into pumpkins and it, it does happen quite frequently.
0: Right. Well, Devin Williams' Airbender's getting better reviews than the new Avatar The Last Airbender, so that's at least a good place to start, but it is (laughs) a, a strong unit behind him. One thing that links the two teams we're previewing today is concerns about ballpark renovations and threats to possibly relocate or uncertainty about that. And that seemed to be resolved in Milwaukee's case, at least. Can you tell us a little bit about how that came together, what was needed or said to be needed in terms of repairs at American Family Field and how that is proceeding?
1: That was that was the contentious uh, part of 2023, most contentious part of 2023 for the Brewers. Uh, it was Josh Hader in 2022. I don't know what it was the year before that, but 2023 was ballpark renovations. There's an interesting situation in Milwaukee, and I, without going, you know, delving into too many of the nitty gritty details on it, but essentially, the Brewers' ballpark, American Family Field, formerly known as Miller Park, is leased by the Brewers. It is owned by a separate entity, the like the ballpark group, or I don't remember their exact name. And they are l- responsible on that lease for upgrades and paying for all these sorts of things. So um it sort of created for this weird dynamic of the brewers asking for upgrades. uh, And then people are like, no, you pay. And then the brewers are sort of like, well, we don't have to. And so it, it created for a very fun time in, in local government. There were lots of different, different proposals and et cetera thrown out um, from different sides of the aisle. And ultimately, you know, the, the renovations were, were passed. Um, the the plan to have the brewers chip in a little bit of money and the state chip in, you know, a certain amount of money and the city chips in money. So it all got passed. It's mostly publicly funded as these things, you know, kind of tend to play out nowadays, but we get, we got to avoid the veiled threats about, you know, the, uh, the brewers leaving it at, team in a town that consistently turns out a top 15 attendance in baseball in the smallest market. So that was, that was nice. At least we didn't have to deal with, um, the, the, the Nashville or the Salt Lake or wherever it be threats. Um, (laughs) and I am honestly glad it's done now because these these things are never fun. And the way that they play (laughs) out feels like it's always sort of the same and, um, kind of the owners usually end up winning in the end. And that is pretty much what happened here they don't need a new ballpark but they you know say that they need lots of new changes to it
3: so we talked about trio a number of the brewers other sort of most highly regarded prospects are position players but i'm curious as we look to that rotation which as we've noted is quite different in its composition or at least isn't headed the same way this year if there are any um, young guys sort of down on the farm that strike you as likely candidates to come up and help the big league club this year if somebody goes down with injury
1: so I think was this a question aimed at getting me to talk about Jacob Mizorowski?
3: <laughs> I was opening the door. If you want to walk through not. I'm still
1: going to. Uh, <laughs> just the, the most intriguing arm in the Brewers system is for sure Jacob Mizorowski. It's uh, we kind of talked about the the DL Hall downside. It's DL Hall on steroids. The stuff is like 80 grade fastball, 80 grade slider. He's six foot six or so and. He throws it basically from the dirt with the extension he gets. So it's it's incredible stuff. They were thinking about him, you know, getting him up to the bullpen at the end of last year, even though he was only 20 or 21 and had barely pitched in the minor leagues. But again, <laughs> what happens when you have a guy like that? It's the command issues. Will he be able to throw strikes uh, at all? You know, just like live close to the zone. Sometimes this, the breaking stuff plays down because... He's throwing it too far down, like it doesn't even <laughs> tempt hitters enough. So, that is the guy that's maybe a bit farther away than like the likes of a uh, Robert Gasser or a Carlos Rodriguez. But because of the stuff, you know, it, teams nowadays can model how those pitches will play in the big leagues and they would probably play pretty well. Um, it's, you know, does he throw strikes and not hit one batter an inning? <laughs> So it has
0: been kind of tough to classify where the Brewers are in their competitive cycle. They are one of the teams that wants to kind of keep things going in a Tampa Bay way. And of course, they have had many Tampa Bay executives who are sort of steering the ship there. But... We always end by asking what would constitute a success for this team this season. So what should be the goal, the realistic goal? What should fans be looking for the Brewers to accomplish either throughout the organization or on the big league team this year?
1: I think that when you look at the Brewers in the the scheme and the context of the last six, seven years, a successful season is making the playoffs that's just the expectation that they've put on on themselves there, there's the brewers there's an interesting dynamic in Milwaukee of you know like simply making the playoffs anymore is not good enough and this is a team that you know not that long ago when they simply made a wild card round it was like they won the whole world series that was what 15 years ago and now it's okay like you made the playoffs great can you win a game can you win a series they've elevated those expectations for themselves and even though they have traded Corbin Burns away and don't have Brandon Woodruff this year, that, I think, is the standard that they are going to and, quite frankly, should be held to. Uh, especially if you're, <laughs> you you had all of these pitchers uh, in their primes, and you I don't think, honestly, you maximized the offense enough to take advantage of it over the last three, four years. Taking a step back when you would have had all these guys under team control, that is, uh, that's, you know, that's a tough look but then on the flip side of the coin long term view which is maybe you know the the most rational logical way to look at the brewers a successful season is enough of the young guys take step forward where you can see them being set up to contend in the division and win the division and bring a world series home finally to milwaukee in the next 4 to 6 to 8 years you need you know if jackson Churio comes out of this year and he's a four win player um, and robert gasser and jacob misrowski are legitimate rotation pieces then i think even if you miss the playoffs you can squint and see that there were big successes on the player development side and that would set the brewers up uh, for some long-term success which is what they preach they you know they don't want to push it all in in one year they want their bites of the apple and uh, they need these guys to turn out to be good players uh, if the future apples will be bitten
0: all right. Well, you can find out whether the apples will be bitten by following Kurt and his colleagues at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel throughout the year. Thank you very much, Kurt. Thanks, guys. Well, I hope you've enjoyed another episode of previews and also what our multi-time guest and Patreon supporter Michael Mountain has termed effect. Wild. We'll see how long we can keep it up. See what I did there. Wanted to read a few responses to our conversation last time about stadium noise, how loud it is at ballparks and all sorts of sports stadia. I mentioned in the course of that email answer that it would be nice just to have a throwback day at the park where no music was blaring. Just enjoyed the sights and sounds of the game. Well, Kevin wrote in to say the minor league team I worked for a decade ago held a purists night with no music between innings and at bats and minimal PA noise. It was the worst attended night of the season, if I recall correctly, and we didn't bring it back the next year. Admittedly, it was already scheduled on an off-peak day, but still. I don't get all the sounds either, but I won't complain as long as MLB doesn't go the way of the NBA, which plays constant music and artificial noise while the game is in progress for some reason. Well, speaking of the NBA, we got another email from listener Daniel, who said he wanted to chime in with a non-baseball example of a sporting event being played without music blaring through the sound systems. In 2017, the New York Knicks decided to play no sound during warm-ups, player introductions, or stoppages in play during the first half of their game against the Golden State Warriors. I do vaguely recall this having happened, hence the email, but not in great detail. It turns out that the players absolutely hated it. He linked me to a story, which I will link to on the show page, a CBS story from March of 2017, headline, Weird, Pathetic. Players pan MSG's no music experiment during Nick's Warriors game. I didn't like it, Nick's big man Kristaps Porzingis said. It felt like open gym, kind of, Warriors shooting guard Clay Thompson said. Draymond Green said, that was pathetic. It was ridiculous. It changed the flow of the game. It changed everything. You advance things in the world to make it better. You don't go back to what's bad. Computers can do anything for us. It's like going back to paper. Why would you do that? It was ridiculous. I don't know that I would make that particular comp. also says that Steph Curry noticed the lack of noise in the locker room before the game and said that the Warriors were trying to pump themselves up once they took the court. And one more response representing a perspective that we didn't consider in our conversation. This is from Isaac, who says, I wanted to add my two cents into the stadium noise conversation from today's episode. Of course, knowing full well I'm in a pretty unique situation overall, and certainly unique for listeners of the podcast, I, for one, really enjoy loud stadium noise because I'm hard of Hearing, and I love moments of being out in the world and getting to experience things the way everyone else gets to, especially if I don't have to wear my annoying and sometimes painful hearing aids to do it. It's difficult for me to hear much of anything while watching games on TV as I try to respect my neighbors in my tiny Manhattan apartment and keep the volume down. So getting to go to games where the volume is actually where I would prefer it to be, where my ears pick up the sound well and what I can't hear I can feel is my ideal. I also grew up playing lacrosse and have recently gotten into the NLL, the professional box slash indoor lacrosse league, which is great for this. Those games mainly cater to local youth lacrosse games, so there is just a lot of sensory input there. They play music from the time they open the stadium to the time the game is over without stopping during play. The announcer, at least for the New York team, is very active and leads call and response chants. And there's just generally a lot of lights and sounds happening, which makes me feel a lot more a part of things. Anyway, I always appreciate these conversations. I love thinking about the ways that sports and entertainment impact us beyond the simple product on the field or TV and how others experience them, especially when it helps me realize I'm kind of the odd one out and potentially how I can advocate for myself and other disabled people while taking into account the experience of the greater fan population. Thank you, Isaac. And thanks to those of you who support Effectively Wild on Patreon, which you can do by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Spinkter, not sphincter, I feel like I need to clarify given this week's podcasts. Spinkter, Cody Glazer, David Maynard, Danger Sow, and timothy webb thanks to all of you patreon perks include access to the effectively wild discord group for patrons only monthly bonus episodes one of which will be coming up soon february short month plus playoff live streams prioritized email answers discounts on merch and ad-free fancraft memberships and autographed books and so much more patreon.com slash effectively wild if you are a patreon supporter you can message us through the patreon site but one way or another you can contact us via email send your questions and comments and intro and outro theme if you have one to podcast at fancrafts.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group effectively wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash effectively wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We'll be back with another preview pod next time. It's an AL Central affair. Twins and Tigers coming up. Talk to you then
1: number one
0: grass, baseball podcast this stat cast is stat blast tops plus when the stats need contrast zips and steamer for the forecast coming in high big boss on a hovercraft no notes Minor league free agent draft. Burn the ships, flames jumping forward now. Cal FEMA boning on the bat shaft. Makers on the butt feet, never say your hot seat. Games are always better with the pivot table spreadsheet. No ads, subscribers will support us. Vroom, vroom fast, so you slog the rig of mortis.